Everyone in the food industry wants to crack the code on Gen Z, but what are the reasons behind the cohort's food purchases? Alpha Divers Hunter Thurman will discuss some surprising findings from the Gen Z edition of the Snack 50 and some of the psychological components that pushes Gen Z towards certain products and brands on this episode of the Food Institute podcast, coming at you right now. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Before we get started, I did want to tell you all about an upcoming Food Institute webinar. It's called Generative AI, What Do Food and Beverage Companies Need to Know? We'll be hosting the event at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on September 19th, and we'll have experts from both Markham and Commerce 12 to help explain the technology and how food companies can leverage it. As always, take a look in the description of this episode for a link to sign up for the event directly. So, with that out of the way, welcome to the show, Hunter. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your career history and a little bit about Alpha Diver for those who might not be familiar with you. Hey, Chris. Uh, great great to be with you here. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've been in the insights and strategy industry, I guess, over, over 20 years now. Um, I started Alpha Diver in 2011, um, it's 12 or 13 years ago, really with the vision of, of applying more science to the world of, of consumer and shopper understanding. Um, psychology, neuroscience, really what we've, what we've come to understand as decision science, um, you know, the scientific, um, the really durable, predictable reasons and factors that underlie um, consumer choice and, and human behavior more broadly. Um, so, you know, really demystify, really simplify why, why people do what they do, why they eat and drink what they, they do, why they consume, um, and, and what marketers and retailers can do um, to, to better meet them in the marketplace. And I love that, you know, it seems like it's part of a larger push in the food industry to have a better understanding, you know, of demographics and what people are actually doing when they purchase a product. Right. So I'd love to get into this conversation. I think a great place to start right now is talking about the snack 50. What can you tell us about this? Yeah. So our, our, our approach, our, our measurement technique essentially measures lots of psychological, lots of decision science factors at a really big scale. And so, of course, we do that with our clients um, and, and have built you know, pretty large data sets with some of them. Um, we wanted to turn that, that capability out to a broader, really a more syndicated style uh, measurement. And so um, really with, with Brian Choi, we, we devised the, uh, uh, what we dubbed the, the Snack 50. And so um, we took the top 50, roughly top 50 selling snack brands. Um, we fudged it a little bit in that we included um, like some, some store brands. Um, there's nine or 10 private label or store brands, which are, are harder to track and measure um, on a volume, per, you know, volume basis. But we wanted to make sure that we had a, a broad swath. But in short, it's the top 50 selling snack brands in the U.S. Um, and basically looked at why, you know, what are these these underlying psychological decision science reasons behind their popularity, behind why one one brand of chip ranks higher than another. Um, and, and what we're measuring is a few key factors, you know, how emotionally attached are people um, how, uh, how routinized is their behavior? How much of a part of their life is, is the brand? And then the third measure that we look at is what we call trajectory or momentum. What's the usage momentum? Does this brand appear to be growing or even the broader category or, or is it likely to fizzle? Um, and so that's where, and I think some of what we're going to talk about today, we find some things that are counterintuitive. 
or counter to what other data sets, for example, like claimed data, you know, where you ask people, what do you want? What will you eat more or less of? Um, we find that there are some differences um, and, and we're very happy about that because we're getting into these more subconscious um, underlying decision decision criteria. So we found that this has been very additive um, um, in some in some cases provocative um, to the broader conversation out in the marketplace. And I think that goes into a larger conversation about, you know, aspirational versus actual consumers and what people say they want to do and what they're actually doing. Um, yeah. And I thought that was one of the more interesting things. And just as a quick note for anyone listening and take a look in the description of this episode, you will see some links directly to some information about the Snack 50. So you'll be able to get take a look at that uh, directly and get an idea of, you know, exactly what Hunter's talking about. But I do know today we're going to be talking about one cohort specifically, and that is the updated Snack 50 for Gen Z, correct? That's right. Yeah. So we did this, um, you know, we collected these data um, earlier in the summer um, and we have then done a, a deep dive on on everybody's darling or at least most in most boardrooms, um, Gen Z, which is, you know, kind of a, it's almost become a cliche term, but but essentially younger consumers, um, you know, and there's a high correlation with with multi-ethnic consumers, with younger consumers. So um, in this in that deep dive and in the one we'll talk today, we're looking at 18 to 25 year olds. Um, and looking at what are the differences, um, you know, what are the differences and what are the, the deeper insights then um, for those younger consumers that so many teams are trying to court. Um, and we found, you know, I think some really interesting, um, unique, unique findings relative to, to their what's driving their behavior. Yeah, and as a millennial, it's nice that the spotlight is off us now and now on to the next generation. I do have a question to start off here. And I, and admittedly, you know, it, depending on your data sources, it will change. But from the Alpha Diver perspective, what would you say are the top three brands that are resonating with Gen Z right now? Do you have any information you could share about that? Yeah, the top three, just just straight off the list, are, are Oreo, Doritos, and Lay's. Um, and that is different from uh, from from the Gen Pop. I mean, we did see that versus the Gen Pop, some brands ascended, Oreo being one of them, um, and some brands fell in the rankings. I think we'll talk more about that. But um, a cookie, um, a flavored uh, you know tortilla, and then and then a classic uh, potato chip rounding the top three. So yeah, I have a couple of thoughts when I heard that originally. Right. So number one, it does seem to fly in the face of a lot of data sources and news outlets that are saying that Gen Z is increasingly interested in functional foods or better for you products, not to take a knock on these snacks, right? But these are products that don't necessarily have that health halo. So I'm wondering, do you have any, you know, thoughts on why that might be why you're seeing these, you know, patterns emerging uh, with Gen Z taking a look at these snack products like this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, really, the, the reason that these three um, are coming to the top, there's different, there's, there's actually interesting that each of them has their own unique kind of profile. But um, the reason is because they're very high on experience. And what we see over the past several years, you know, we've been databasing um, our findings going all the way back to pre-COVID. You know, Gen Z is experiencing a, a a high degree of, of stress and pressure. And early in the days of that discussion, really kind of in the COVID days, everyone's like, oh, you know, this is more, uh, this time is more stressful than ever. People are more anxious than ever. I was very dismissive of that. 
I kind of always said that's not true. It's always been stressful. I mean, going back to the 80s and the Cold War or, you know, Vietnam, you know, in the U.S., whatever, uh, whatever period you want to look to, there's always been a stressor. My view, you know, a few years ago was we, of course, are experiencing this now. So we, you know, societally believe that this is the worst. So I was kind of like, no, 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 it's always been like this. In fact, in our data, we do see, and there's been corroborating data from other sources that especially younger consumers actually are experiencing a really uniquely high um, external stress, to put it in the broadest sense. And so what that tells us um, is that, you know, when people are under duress, when they're feeling stress and anxiety, humans are, we have evolved and, and our, our instinct and our compulsion is to, what our scientists call emotionally self-regulate, you know, probably what you and I would call make ourselves do things that make ourselves feel better. And so you look at brands like Oreo Doritos and Lay's Oreo aligns with, with this experience, giving people um, and, and anyone that downloads the report can see how we render these and see these indexes and these data, but consumers perceive that Oreo really aligns with new experiences to go and explore and discover. And when you look at their innovation pipeline and their strategy, that makes sense. I mean, there's all these crazy kinds of Oreos. It seems like every time you go in there, there's, you know, a new birthday cake or what flavor Oreo or whatever. They're really driving that. Doritos is all about this very impulsive, you know, feel good fast. Um, just basically a really, you know, reach for a bag of Doritos, um, grab a few, and it, it provides this, you know, this quick feel good kind of emotional um, mood boost. Um, and then Lay's we see aligned with with what we call conformity or social connection. It's something that, that, that consumers perceive they can gather around. So there's three different reasons for those looking at those top three, but all of them are based on these emotional experiential factors, not about, I need, you know, a hundred calories for the lowest price possible that, that sometimes come through, you know, in other, in other data reports. Yeah. And one of the things I've really noticed the last couple of years, I think, for a long time, the food industry saw health and wellness as a bucket term, but there are a lot of different aspects here. And I think one part that you're talking to with Gen Z right now is the mental health component, right? That wellness aspect, having some kind of indulgence when you're feeling stressed, it can give you a little bit of a mood boost. And that's not to say that they're not focusing on health and a lot of the other aspects of their life, right? Maybe some of their other food choices are a little bit more health driven, but I think snacking especially kind of lines itself up for an opportunity to give yourself a mood boost. And I'm wondering, you know, when you take a look at Gen Z, is that what you're seeing as well? I know you kind of talked about how that's what they're looking for. And I guess generally with the stressors we're facing now, all consumers are looking for that. So I'm wondering, sure. you know, in your mind, is Gen Z looking at this in a different way than other demographics? or even other cohorts that came before them? It's most pronounced with Gen Z. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a scale, but you're absolutely right. Everybody's kind of in that boat, um, but it's most potent, um, you know, or most strongly expressed in general um, for younger consumers. And, and what you said is spot on. You know, it, it's that we need to remember when we think about wellness, you know, whatever articulation, you know, or buzzword or whatever you use, you know, good to you, is equally important to good for you. And a lot of these are good to you, you know, and there's that plays a real role um, in, in your life. Things that, you know, having a couple Oreos and, and, and blowing off a little steam or you know, a bag of Doritos and blowing off a little steam, that can be really, that can actually be a, a, a component, 
I'd say, of, of health and wellness. You know, and, and I think if you even even in the better for you, you know, we've caught a little bit of flack um, at times as we've rolled this out from like nutritionists saying, well, you can't advocate for this. You know, that, that this is what everyone a we're not saying this is what everyone should be eating or, or emotionally you know, attached to. We're just reporting the facts. Um, but even if you are in the health and wellness space, it's an important reminder that the facts, you know, the label, the claims, the, you know, the, 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 the very functional claims are not all that, you know, they're not the end all be all of driving behavior. So, you know, I think back to like when Shabani and this, this one goes back a ways, but when Shabani, you know, really invented, or I guess I'd say popularized, you know, as far as most Americans are concerned, they invented Greek yogurt, but really they just, they just brought it to the market. You know, that had a lot of functional benefits. It was high protein, low fat. There was, there was lots to it that could have been a, you know, better for you way of getting protein. But, you know, they really emphasize the creaminess, the, you know, the thickness, the, the um, you know, the sensory components of it. And that one-two punch of good to you and good for you is actually super powerful. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think there's brands out there that consider themselves in the better for you space. And they're so focused on the ingredient label and the claims, the numbers and the stats and the you know, clinical tests and whatever that they forget that they probably have a really strong experiential story that they can weave in with that. Um, and, and that, that, that's a real unlock to, um, to even something that's, that's, you know, meant to be a total health and wellness type of uh, product or brand. It's really interesting. Um, I'd like to turn gears here a little bit. Um, one of the more interesting findings I saw in the report is that Gen Z seems to have a focus on products that they can chew. So I was yeah. wondering, what can you tell me about this finding? You know, what kind of insights did you pull together when you were going through and putting this report together? Yeah. So a couple things I mentioned that we were looking for, you know, what, which categories and brands ascend, meaning move up the rankings and which descend, which, which fall in popularity with the younger consumers. And we found immediately that fruity, chewy candy, so like Sour Patch Kids, Starburst, brands like that, and meat snacks, you know, beef jerky, things like brands like Jack Links and Slim Jim, those were the two strongest ascenders. They made dramatic and, and, and you know, and, and really, really glaring leaps um, in terms of the, you know, emotional importance and the, the voltage um, with, with these younger consumers. And it was sort of an accidental insight, which was sometimes the best one. We were looking through the results and talking about it. And our, our director of data insights, uh, Mary Mathis said, you know, it's interesting. These are both really chewy profiles relative to the other things in the, in the, the, the uh, study, like salty snacks and you know, chips, crackers, things. She's like, these, these are really chewy. Um, and our psychology teammates, and we, we've looked at this in the past, immediately chimed in. And it's like, that makes all the sense in the world. There's been this insight you know, for, for a long time that, that chewing, um, has a real physiological correlation with what I talked about earlier, emotional self-regulation. So the act of chewing, um, and there's, you know, I'll, I'll spare you the, the kind of, you know, literature review, white paper things, but it basically, um, is a way that, that, you know, the, the scientific world has demonstrated makes people feel better. So it's really interesting that the two chewiest, you know, in the broadest sense, the two chewiest categories rose dramatically. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I almost, you know, we were almost hesitant with that when we put that in the report because, you know, it almost sounds so obvious and so like product based, like make things chewier. 
But when you peel it back and say that's because chewing, you know, really correlates with emotional regulation and stress relief and things like that, um, it all starts to hang together. And, um, and I think provides some really interesting, uh, you know, diagnosis of why those brands are ascending, you know, and the flavor profiles are really different. Fruity, chewy candy versus meat snacks are almost like opposite ends of the other than the chewiness, they, they sort of couldn't be more different. Um, but that unifying factor we thought was really interesting. And uh, actually, you know, when you look at it from an innovation strategy standpoint, there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for more chewy stuff potentially. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know you brought up a couple brands there like Sour Patch Kids, Jack's Links, or Jack Links, sorry, um, you know, Slim Jim's. Are these the only brands that they're going for? Or are these the top brands in that category, you would say? I know Chewy isn't really a category you would see in any you know database probably, but just taking a look at that, are those the top brands you're seeing? Yeah, the ones in the report, the biggest ascenders. So, the, so Fruity Chewy Candy ranked as a category number nine. Um, so there, there were 10 categories in the general, you know, in the broader Snack 50. So among the Gen Pop, Fruity Chewy Candy um, ranked number nine. Um, second to last, and it moved up to number four. So it moved way up. Um, jerky and meat snacks were, were lowest ranking, and it moved up to number seven. So it moved up several spots um, with young consumers. And the brands within those that most dramatically rose were Sour Patch Kids, Airheads, Skittles, um, Starburst, and Twizzlers in the candy space. Um, and then the only two big enough volume brands in meat snacks that, that we measured were Slim Jim, which rose 10 spots. It rose pretty dramatically. Um, and Jack Links, which moved up just one spot. So Slim Jim outpaced um, Jack Links at brand level in, in, in driving that category. Um, you know, and what's interesting is you look at these categories, there's not a whole lot of other brands, you know, within them. Um, so, you know, Fruity Chewy Candy and then and the Meat Snacks, as I said, in the, in the top 50, you know, volume brands, um, there just aren't that many out there, um, which, which I think further emphasizes, you know, the, the, the impact of that, of, of those data shifts that, you know, there's, there's potentially a lot of opportunity um, to, to, for, for brands, you know, outside of Fruity Chewy Candy and, and Meat Snacks to, to innovate towards that. And it's also interesting when you take a look at it, Jack Links is a little bit you know, newer, but the other brands you just mentioned were all around when I was growing up, right? So there is like a legacy aspect here. And a lot of people, I think, when they think of younger consumers, they're expecting them to be looking for cutting edge, newer products, you know, edgier, even if you want to say it, a lot of these things kind of get thrown around when you're talking about marketing for younger consumers. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. It is kind of interesting to me, at least to see, you know, some of these, I don't want to call them legacy brands, but maybe we'll call them that just to kind of compare them that they're doing so well with this cohort. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, this gets outside of, of, of what we looked at in the snack 50, but one thing that Mary, who I mentioned a moment ago has been writing a lot on is nostalgia. Um, and that's been something that has, you know, splashed the headlines of, of LinkedIn beyond about, you know, nostalgia brands. And, and, and again, it goes back to consumers looking for ways to help themselves feel better amidst, you know, external pressure and things, you know, it sounds like you it sort of evoked that even for you almost like, oh, I remember that kind of fondly, you know, like you think back to, um, to your youth or whatever, um, that, uh, that, that has a lot of relevance in that emotional self-regulation. So it's sort of like the double whammy. Like if you remember Sour Patch Kids or Airheads or whatever, Skittles as a kid, and now it's got both the nostalgia factor and 
um, you know, and a, a really high sensory profile that, that relates to, you know, helping you feel better and the chewy um, profile, it starts to layer in. And that's where some of these brands are, are performing really strongly, um, particularly with this younger cohort. Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, another thing I thought was worth talking about was just the better for you snacks and how this cohort kind of relates to them. Uh, we did talk about this a little bit earlier, but in the report, you did talk about how Gen Z does have some emotional attachment to these type of products. So I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in any, you know, marketing circles, I, I think everybody's heard the phrase of the say do gap, meaning what, what people say versus what they do. It's kind of notorious. Um, and the reason for that is not because we're so deceitful as a species you know, that we're constantly lying, but it's like, listen, in January, I mean, are, am I going to go to the gym every day in January? Absolutely. Yes. You know, it's like, what did I say that last year? Yes, absolutely. Did I do it? No. Um, you know, not to say that everybody's, you know, resolutions or best intentions are doomed to fail, but there's all sorts of biases that happen in our mind. Um, that what we think we're going to do, and, and, you know, when you talk about better for your healthy eating, you know, daily life gets in the way um, and our own cognition gets in the way. Um, you know, so for example, am I going to eat, you know, as you said, not to disparage any, any of the brands on the Snack 50, but, you know, am I going to eat quote unquote healthy this week? Yes, I'm going to. You know, then Tuesday, I, I have a crummy day, you know, I, I don't get a good night's sleep, something goes poorly, you know, at work, and I'm bummed out. And, and what feels better than, you know, driving through McDonald's and, and having a little 20 minute vacation, you know, just, oh, this, this is going to, this is going to be, you know, the, the, the meme of comfort food that exists for a reason. You know, when, I, when people talk about comfort food, everybody knows what that is. That's what we're talking about. And that's a good example of like, yeah, I drive through McDonald's and it's playing a really emotional role for me in the context of, of that daily life. Even though on Sunday I was like, nope, you know, going to eat uh, salads this week and, and quote, eat healthy. It's, it's where this emotional self-regulation, you know, comes into play and, and changes, changes, you know, what we do from, from what we say or impacts what we do versus what we say. Um, and so it's just really important for brands, whether you're McDonald's or whether you're, um, you know, like, like a, a better for you, um, type of proposition, you've got to serve that experiential piece. You've got to understand what role you feel and that emotional engagement, that experiential engagement is what we see driving the category these categories across the snack 50. And in fact, we did a kind of a sister study of the Bev 50, which you guys have seen some of it's the same story, you know, it's carbonated soft drinks and things like that doing extremely well for a lot of the same reasons. Um, so it's just really important to remember like the, you know, the trenches of daily life. And that's where then sometimes our best intentions of quote better for you um, can be tempered um, or look different in the light of day. Yeah, and I really appreciate that because, like I said, you take a look at a lot of these reports, and granted, everything has to be taken together, right? None of these reports are happening in a vacuum. Even when you bring up the McDonald's aspect, you know, there's probably a nostalgia factor for a lot of consumers when they're going to McDonald's as well if they had it as a kid, right? But I'm taking a look at Gen Z specifically. You know, like I said, I've seen a lot of reports that this is the health and wellness generation. When we take a look at some of the healthier products on the Snack 50, you know, what's different with Gen Z compared to the regular, you know, well, you know, 
broader population is probably the right way to say that. But, you know, when you take a look at Gen Z compared to every other cohort, you know, what are you finding when it comes to those better for you snacks and products? Well, I, th- I think it's, you know, I, I think it, it, at the, the highest level, it's what I've been describing. It's that experience by and large um, comes first. We've seen this a lot with things like like ESG, you know, environmental social governance. Um, and this goes, you know, this is inclusive of food, but beyond, you know, if you sit down a 22 year old and say, what matters to you? What, what do you care about? How do you choose which brand of food, you know, broadest sense? Um, to, to consume, to support. We, the system, the, 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 the cognitive, you know, mental system that that type of research or that type of questioning triggers is our rational selves. So of course we say, I expect, I expect, you know, companies to use sustainable practices. I expect companies to have, you know, really strong environmental stance. I expect them to use, you know, um, quality, you know, sustainable ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen time and again that companies, uh, you know, that listen to that sort of to the letter of it. And it's exactly your point a minute ago. They don't temper it with other data. They kind of go, okay, that's what they said. And then they come forth and say, here's a bag of chips, but forget the chips. This is made with sustainable grains and it's got, you know, we buy carbon credits and, you know, very, very functional. And they're, they're struggling. And they come back, and, you know, in cases, in some cases, they've come to us and said, we did exactly what they said. And they're not, you know, what they said they'd buy, the quantities and whatnot, their forecasts are way off. Sometimes it's just a simple pivot. Lead with the experience and let those, you know, those functional things be the corroborating or the supporting evidence um, for, you know, in your proposition. And that's, that's the real unlock. Because while, you know, in younger consumers and in Gen Z, you know, you mentioned millennials and I'm, I'm kind of on the, on the cusp between Gen X and millennial and then boomers before that. I mean, early in my career, all we cared about was boomers, baby boomers. I mean, that was it for like a decade of my career. Um, you know, everybody cares about the big cohort of the day. So everybody's asking Gen Z what they want. And they're hearing a lot of that, you know, better for you, functional ESG type input when you follow it too blindly that's where brands are getting into trouble because they're not accounting for the part that consumers don't recognize in their own behavior that they don't recognize that they're doing a lot of things to make themselves feel better etc and it's the combination or at least the consideration of kind of the left brain right brain if you will um that that's particularly potent with you know anybody but with gen z being everybody's focus it's particularly um, poignant right now and another thing that Gen Z seems to be doing that's very interesting to me is the fact that they're still focused on brands. We've seen, at least at the Food Institute, a ton of data that would show that private label was on the rise. I would say it was on the rise before the pandemic. Then there seemed to be a little bit of a nostalgia bump during the pandemic, plus supply chain gaps, et cetera, where we saw some of these brands, you know, legacy brands, like I said earlier, uh, really rising in prominence. But with inflation in general, I'm finding that private label is on the way up. And if you take a look around, if you look at some private label products, I would say the quality is way better than when I was a kid, when you go to get some of these private label uh, products. But like I said, it seems that Gen Z is kind of breaking from that mold. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and, you know, what kind of brands does Gen Z in general want to engage with when it comes to the, you know, branded aspect of a food product? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I saw some really interesting, really interesting uh, numerator data that that um, they were presenting along with Nick Modi of, of RBC this morning um, and basically saying, you know, and this was Gen Pop. This wasn't, uh, 
Gen Z, but basically they, they went out and said, you know, how are you looking to save money? Um, and the, 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 the first four um, ranking ways, the number one was promotions and discounts, basically, you know, shopping promos. The second one was cooking more at home. The third was bulk buying, which is more like club store behavior. The fourth was exploring alternative grocers. I, you might as well put Aldi in, you know, in that space. And the fifth was private label products. So it was an interesting, you know, again, it's not focused on Gen Z, but it was an interesting insight that that the only, you know, the only road to, to inflationary response is not, you know, what many, what many teams call trading down. I also, you know, to that point about trading down, it's not trading down, it's switching. You know, these, and, and I've been a big proponent, I did a post on LinkedIn that said, I hereby call for the end of the phrase of um, private label. They're not, they're owned brands, they're store brands. Um, you know, I had some, there was something the other day where I was going to Walmart and my wife said, will you pick up some more of these, these egg bites? And she showed me the box and it was Simple Truth, which is one of Kroger's owned brands. And I'm like, they don't have that at Walmart. That's a Kroger brand. She's like, I don't, you know, I didn't, I don't know. She does most of her shopping at Kroger, but it was a great example of like, you know, in her mind, she wasn't like, Ooh, I've been buying national brand egg bites. Now I'm trading down to Simple Truth. That was just the brand, you know, that we consume. So they have become brands in their own right. And so there's this interesting kind of like paradox with Gen Z because, and we see in the data that these, these store brands and one thing that we talked a good deal about when I did a, a webcast with, with Brian a, a few months ago was the reason for people to choose those, those store brands really isn't price. It's much more what we found. It's much more about social agreement. It's much more like we've all agreed, we Kroger shoppers or we Walmart shoppers have agreed that this is a, like a socially endorsed brand. So they've become very normalized. This becomes the paradox, though. Gen Z, the younger consumers, are expressing a much more individualized um, perception and set of decision criteria. So, okay, all these store brands have become like sort of status quo. They've become socially normalized. Gen Z is much more introspective in, in, in a given person's decision making. They're much less confirm, concerned with conformity or social norms. So they're seeking brands that provide, in short, the best experience for them. And in many cases, that is not um, what they perceive to be what store brands are doing. Um, and so as a result, in the in the Gen Z report of the SAC 50, all the store brands um, across the board drop um, anywhere from one spot in ranking with great value to 13 spots in ranking uh, with, with Amazon's happy belly. Um, but like Aldi drops eight points, Kirkland drops six points, et cetera. Um, so they're deciding, I mean, I think the summary, I know I've kind of thrown a lot of like, you know, corroborating factors together. Essentially, Gen Z is following their gut. They're following their instincts. They're following the, their emotional um, perceptions. And that really relates to that experience. And as a result, store brands are, are actually diminishing in importance for them. So yeah, we're just talking about, you know, how they're turning away from private label brands. Are there any brands we could use maybe as a case study to talk about how to appeal to Gen Z? One kind of brand that maybe you would say is like the, maybe not the gold standard, but definitely something you could learn from if you're trying to market to this demographic. 
Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there, there are, there are a lot. One that I noted just yesterday um, on uh, kind of around LinkedIn, it, it, it started getting some, this post started getting some, you know, a lot of comments and things. There was a, a study by, I guess, Fordham University um, ranking the most innovative companies, um, the most innovative companies in America. And Trader Joe's was voted. And so this is not the, the person that posted it said they're not innovative at all. They're not. In fact, they just announced that they won't do, um, you know, digital checkout or, or, or you know, even self checkout. Um, you know, they're they're antiquated. This wasn't this wasn't what we marketing and retail types think. This is what consumers and shoppers think are the most innovative companies. And Trader Joe's was the, the fourth most innovative company. There were lots of, you know, Apple and all these other companies. Um, and it was kind of by far, I believe, the, the most, I know it was the most innovative grocer. And I think it was a pretty wide margin. And it just drove a lot of discussion that like, man, all, all you know, they really don't innovate all that much. But then they had um, a Trader Joe's president came in and said, our, our view of innovation is not robots in aisles, you know, and stuff like that. It's all about the experience of our, our team members, you know, providing opportunities and innovating the way that we help our team members grow their careers. Um, you know, obviously they have a pretty strong product innovation um, approach, but basically all he was talking about was the experience. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. And the comment that I made about it is so much of, quote, innovation at the retail level is, is the what's the functional stuff faster checkout, you know, app enabled, digital this, digital that. What Trader Joe's is focused on is all experience. It's like if, if an innovation doesn't relate to something that's a really like emotional um, experience, not just speedier checkout, um, th then they don't do it. Um, and, you know, at least by this measure that I, I cited, consumers are responding to that. Um, so I think that's a, it, it just it was a stark example of, you know, they're doing the least on all the digital and crazy stuff. And, and they're the most focused on the experiential piece um, and consumers perceive it to actually they're giving it a lot of credit. So, you know, that speaks to that experience bit, um, you know, and some of the ones that that come up as as really interesting examples um, of, of disruptors that are so focused on experience are like like Beast Bar. Mr. Beast, um, you know, and they've had their Beast Burger kind of came and then they had all sorts of operational problems, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Beast Bar is like, you know, a chocolate bar. It's just basically, I mean, he doesn't, they don't say anything about the chocolate. It's not like it's some crazy, you know, Belgian chocolate you've never had. It's just from Mr. Beast, you know, and there's a whole, there's a whole community and a whole experiential digital, you know, um, zeitgeist around that. And it's been really disruptive. You know, another one is prime, um, the energy and isotonic. So the energy they have, an, I think a lot of people are familiar with prime. It, it's been, you know, popularized really by Logan Paul, the, the influencer turned boxer, um, and, or I get Jake and Logan mixed up. The Paul boys have been behind prime and it's, um, energy, and, and then they have a, 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 a um, isotonic um, sports drink version. And it's like having this meteoric rise. And again, you know, it, it's not that they've said, hey, we've cracked the code on, you know, functional hydration. It's all about the experience. You know, and the last one that I think is really interesting and getting a little long in the tooth now, but is, is liquid death water. 
you know, kind of that point a minute ago, if you ask somebody, if you ask, I mean, anybody, but, you know, certainly a 22 year old, you know, what, A, what kind of prepackaged water would you like? They'd be like, are you kidding me? You know, there's 20 feet in the grocery store and it's totally commoditized for the most part. They certainly wouldn't have said, well, I don't know, maybe if there was one that would kill me. I I think I'd buy that. But, you know, here liquid death launched and obviously it's tongue in cheek. It's not an actual threat against the consumer, but they created this really experiential, um, you know, positioning around it. And it's had really strong results. Yeah, it is interesting. You go to a concert or, you know, a lot of venues when you're going out now and, you know, water used to be maybe the bartender will give you a glass, right? But a lot of places are now selling the canned version. And I think there is an experiential part to that as well. You know, if everyone else is holding a can of beer around you and you have a can of water, you know, it kind of makes you feel a little bit more included. I think people are more apt to go after it because of the branding as well. So it is really interesting to see how that has turned out over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and all the surrounding, you know, as I said, they didn't, they don't talk about the electrolytes or the purification or the spring origins of it. You know, it's, it's all about the experience and the emotional, you know, the emotional feels of, of holding that can versus holding a bottle, you know, a traditional plastic bottle. Anyone that's tried it can relate to that. You know, it's, it's totally different and, and yet it's still just water. So today we talked about the Snack 50, the Bev 50, the Gen Z version of the Snack 50. I'm wondering at this point, Hunter, what's next for Alpha Diver? <laughs> yeah, well, certainly we're, we're continuing our, you know, our client engagements. I mean, this, this, uh, these data have given us a lot to obviously talk about. We've been, ta- you know, we've been doing a lot of deep dives. Um, so, you know, for companies we'll call and, and, and we have a lot of data that underlie the reports that we can, we can dig more deeply into. So that's been really positive on on this, uh, this, both the snack and beverage side of things. Um, we're just putting the finishing touches on a um, Bev 50. I mentioned isotonics and energy. We've done a deep dive on that. Those two categories, um, you know, really prime has been a lot of the reason, um, but, but energy drinks and sports drinks are having a lot of overlap. It's causing all sorts of questions and challenges, even from a merchandising standpoint, like what goes with what? consumers and shoppers minds. So we found some really interesting insights that help resolve that, you know, why are our, um, our energy and sports drinks converging in consumers minds so much. So that'll be the next deep dive that'll be coming out, um, shortly. Um, we'll continue to do, um, you know, these deep dives, we'll continue to, to, um, to field these and, and maintain these data sets and look for shifts over time. And then of course we do, you know, more, I'd call it semi-custom deep dives with specific clients and specific categories. Hunter, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us today. It's always a great conversation. I always learn a lot. I'm hoping the audience does too. And I'm just wondering, you know, if people want to learn more about Alpha Diver and the Snack 50, where can they go? Yeah, these reports are available for download. Um, So if anyone goes to our website, which is alpha-diver.com, um, there, there's a, a tab where you can, you can look at our, you know, our news and, and other, other articles and things that we've written. And that's, uh, my email is hunter at alpha-diver.com, but you know, the, the best general place is, um, is our website. Excellent. If you take a look, like I said, in the description of this episode, you'll find some links directly to the Alpha Diver website and some Food Institute content that we worked on with Hunter and his team in the past. But like I said earlier, Hunter really, really appreciated the time today. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. So that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, please make sure to take a look in the description of this episode for some relevant links. 
but we'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell, signing off.